you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1 tonight. Mark chapter 1. I'm going to preach a message I've titled, Living According to God's Authority. Living According to God's Authority. I think the title of that message will, will, will make sense the more we get into the text tonight. Before we read our text, um, I read a situation that happened in a game where Babe Ruth was playing. Um, he was the great home run hitter for the New York Yankees. And during one particular at-bat, you might have heard this story, but the umpire, whose name was also Babe, the last name Pinelli, called Babe Ruth out on strikes. And there was a stunned silence in the stands when Babe Ruth got struck out. And Ruth turned to Pinelli, the umpire, and said, there are 40,000 people in here who know that last pitch was a ball. And Pinelli, the umpire, replied, Maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts. And I think we live in a world of thousands of opinions, do we not? There are experts, and thanks to social media, we've met them all, in every field imaginable, some, some of, uh, of whom conflict with one another. And so a lot of times on these issues of, of life and politics and everything, I, I always ask myself, whose opinion really counts? Like, like who has the authority that actually matters? Who's the umpire? Uh, it plays out so much in the national issues we face in 2020. So many opinions speaking to these issues like, like, like global warming. Uh, and I'm not here to make any political statements just to prove a point that, that, that some people would say that global warming really threatens our planet there's a whole nother group of people that say it's a hyped up scare tactic to serve special interest groups. Like whose opinion matters? Whose authority matters? Now I know every one of you will have an opinion about that. But who's right? Is, is the coronavirus something every American should be panicked about? If you go on social media, then you're gonna learn it's driving down our stocks and, 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 and there's panic all over the world. Yet there's a segment of our own society that is telling us that Donald Trump has it under control. And Mike Pence, is, he's got it. Like, you're okay. You're not going to get sick. Like, who's telling the truth? Who's, author who's the umpire? We, we could talk about opinions on both sides of the health care issue. Sh should we compassionately take steps to provide health care for every American? Or would that increase our national debt to the point where it might cripple our future? What about our nation's involvement in stabilizing the Middle East countries who are suffering beneath the violence of radicals? Do we send more troops in? Or do we conclude, as Britain and Russia have in years past, that these kind of countries are ungovernable and take ourselves out like they did as soon as we can? Like, like who's right? You understand I say all of that not to get a, a political uprise out of you, but to prove that there are voices everywhere that can speak into every one of those issues. And there are voices in this room that would probably conflict when we talk about those issues. But when it comes to those kind of issues, we don't really struggle that much. On day-to-day, day-to-day decisions, those kind of issues like that, those national issues, they don't weigh on us real heavy. It's not like we're going to bed wondering who's right in all these issues. Most of the time, sometimes I do, but most of the time they don't affect our daily lives. But there are other times when the issues hit closer to home. 
that they're more personal. And the course of action is entirely within our control, not the government's. And the outcome rests entirely on the decision we make. In those situations, the question of whose authority we'll listen to and whose opinion we'll let influence our decision becomes very critical. A lot more critical than global warming. For instance, when you have a difficult decision about how you will act during a stressful time in your marriage, maybe your spouse just isn't present, your, your spouse isn't interested in growing personally or, or together, maybe your spouse was dishonest to you in the area of finances, or maybe they've made this uh, momentous decision affecting your family without ever talking it over with you first. In those moments, you have to decide how you will respond. So who will influence your response? So now I'm talking about where you're living. I'm not talking about the White House. I'm talking about your house. Like, 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 like who's the authority and opinion that is going to dictate how you respond to that stressful situation in your marriage? When you're deciding what movie am I going to watch and what, what, what songs will I listen to and what TV programs will, 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 will I, I let my kids view and, and what are we going to do for fun on the weekends and who am I going to do it with? What influences those decisions in your life? Like, who will be the authority that matters in those decisions for you? When you're making decisions about how to grow your business or advance your career or handle a sticky situation at work, where do you go for direction? Who gets the final say in how you respond? When someone you live with or work with or go to church with does something or says something that offends you or hurts you or disappoints you, who do you take your cues from for how to respond to that offense? The question, who do I listen to? The, the question, who's my authority, can actually become very critical in life. Because whoever your authority is in these big decision-making moments dictates the behavior in that situation. So in our text, there are some people. Now follow me. They're, they're living in this lakeside community in the first century, and they're kind of grappling with these same questions. Who should we listen to? Who should we look to for direction? Who's an authority on the important matters of life? In fact, a new teacher, we know he was Jesus, was in the area. And he was forcing them to grapple with such questions. He had been traveling around their province for the past few months, and they had heard good things about him. In fact, just a few weeks ago, he had come to their lakeside community and, and some of their most important businessmen, some of the leaders in the fishing industry had started spending some time with Jesus. The last few weekends, he had been speaking in their synagogue services right here in Mark 1. And now the townspeople of Capernaum were trying to come to some conclusions about who he was. Here's why, because his teaching was like nothing they've ever heard before. What he was saying, how he was saying it, was so different from everything they were used to. He spoke with such a, a, a ring of truth. His words seemed to have an authority behind them. They were blown away by it. They didn't even know what to make of it. Then something happened while he was speaking one week in the synagogue. Something so unusual, it was even a bit scary. They saw how Jesus handled it and they had no idea what to think of it. And it's recorded for us in verse 21 through 28. And you and I need to grapple with the implications, I think, of this event in our lives today. Look at verse 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, 
And straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as scribes. So we're given context. Stay with me. Jesus is now on the lakeside city of Capernaum. That was the home of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. All the, the, the leaders in the area's fishing industry who have begun to spend time with Jesus now. Jesus soon starts attending these local synagogue services and, and he's immediately asked to speak. Now it's interesting when I studied that that, that that in those days the synagogues didn't have salaried staff. They didn't have resident teachers. So the speaking or teaching was all done by lay people within the congregation. They would have a coordinator or, or a facilitator who would supervise the services and schedule the speakers and, and word had spread about Jesus. He'd been doing a lot of speaking and he was pretty good at it. And so when he came to Capernaum, they immediately invited him to be the speaker for as many times as he wished. Verse 22 tells us that after just a few weeks, the people were blown away by his teaching. The word Mark used was astonished. They didn't know what to make of it. Here's why. His words had authority. Everybody say authority. authority. He was not like the teachers of the law, the religious scholars of the day. He was not like what Mark called the scribes. You know what a scribe was? It was an educated person. Someone who could read well and write well. They could study well. The scribes or teachers of the law, they knew the Jewish teachings of, of the elders of the day. They knew the different biblical interpretations that had come down through the centuries. They could tell the congregations at the synagogues, they could tell them, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, but Rabbi such-and-such thought that it meant this instead. So they could teach you the options, they could teach you all the possible interpretations, but they couldn't decide among them. All they could do as the scribes was repeat the traditions of the fathers long ago. But when Jesus taught, watch this, he spoke with a certainty that came from the Father above. He didn't speak as like some commentator. He didn't speak as just a smart scholar like, well, these guy says this, this guy for yourself. No. He was saying, this is the truth. His words had authority. They had a ring of truth. The people said, man, this is different from anything we're used to. He's not like the scribes. He's not like the teachers of the law. This guy speaks with authority. And then one Sabbath day, something happened during one of their services that was unusual. A bit scary. They did not explain it. They weren't sure they could handle what it meant for them. Look at verse 23. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. So I want you to put yourself in the middle of this synagogue. Right in the biblical script, and Jesus is preaching this amazing, authoritative sermon. And sitting in the room is, is this man who is possessed by a demon. And sometimes I think some babies in here are possessed by demons during my preaching. Come out! <laughs> Go to the nursery. The demon got so overcome by the presence of Christ, the demon that was inside this particular man, and Christ's authoritative teaching that he shouted through this man to Jesus. Like he literally took control of this man's voice. And he said, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? 
Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now what if I happen to Fellowship Baptist Church this coming Sunday morning? See, we look at these things. It's no wonder people think the Bible's boring. They don't put themselves in the biblical script. We would be freaking out. This is crazy. But what's maybe even more impressive is how Jesus handled it. Because he commands the demon, hold your peace. In other words, be quiet. And come out of the man. But how Mark said Jesus did it is particularly significant to the greater point of the text, which is highlighting the authority of Christ. Because Mark writes that Jesus rebuked the demon. This is a special word when you study it because it displays the authority of Jesus in a powerful way. The Hebrew equivalent of this word in the Old Testament is the word used to describe the moments when God simply spoke a word and his enemies were subdued. The moments when God rebuked them and they were destroyed. The moments when God simply said it and it was done. So let me give you a Hebrew equivalent in a couple passages in Psalms. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Same word. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. I'll explain that in a moment. Here, here's, here's the next form of the word. Thou stout-hearted are spoiled. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep. And none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. Thou, even thou, are to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? So, so here's what's happening. God's simple word of rebuke, we're proven in the book of Psalms, has such authority that immediately nations are destroyed. Immediately horses and chariots are rendered impotent. When he says it, it's done. Like that's some serious authority. So Mark uses... This language of rebuke, God's authoritative word which immediately brings his enemies under his control to show the people of Capernaum uh, um, that they're being confronted with who Jesus really is. They are realizing that he is not some rabbi. He is not a scribe. He's not one of you. Like, he is God. He has the same authority as God. He speaks and it happens. All his enemies are under his control, including all the demons of the world. That was why Mark included that in here. And the people don't know how to handle Jesus' response of authority to the demons. Look at verse 27. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Now notice in verse 27, they were amazed. They were amazed because of the authority Jesus had to call out this demon. Jesus said, come out, and the demon came out. They were amazed at that, and it seems to be the same emotion that is mentioned in verse 22, whenever they heard Jesus speak with authority. They were astonished. But when you study it, it actually is a little bit different. Because the word astonished there means they were kind of blown away, impressed, overwhelmed at how Jesus spoke with such authority. But in verse 27, the word used for amaze carries with it the idea of fear creeping in. 
that it was another level of impression. That something unexplainable and a bit scary has just happened, and they have no idea what to make of it. Now, the thing that was scary for the people, watch it, this is important, was not the presence of the demon. The presence of the demon was a little more common back then than it was today, in terms of showing up like this. The thing that amazed them, almost to the point of reverent fear, was Jesus' power over the demon. That Jesus simply speaks and the demon has to leave. Jesus simply makes the decision, this is not going to be. And the matter is settled. Like that's a bit more than they can handle. They've never seen a scribe call out a demon like that. They're like, is this a new doctrine? This is almost, it's so amazing it's scary. You ever been there? Now with us, in terms of demons, it's the other way around. We know Jesus could call out a demon. That probably wouldn't scare us. The demon would scare us. The thought of a demon actually being in someone, making them do something, it sounds strange. Even scary to us. We, we, we seldom uh, explain um, somebody's behavior as being caused by a demon. Right? I mean... Maybe if some sixth grader is acting like just a crazy lunatic, we'll be like, dude, that, that kid's demon-possessed. But we don't mean that. We do use phrases like, man, what's gotten into you? Like, what's come over you? We never, like, like say, you're demon-possessed and mean it. When we say, like, what, what, what's coming to you, what's come over you, we're, we're using these phrases be, because you're acting in a way that we can't explain. It's almost as though something else is going on because this isn't who you really are. I want to break this down just a little more. I'm going somewhere. There are times when we come across some evil that's beyond our ability to explain. An evil that's that's out of the ordinary. That's beyond normal human sinfulness. Uh, It can be something in the news or on the radio that we hear. And it's just like we shudder at and we ask ourselves, how can such evil exist? I I read a story uh, about a man and his wife who kidnapped an 11-year-old girl, hid her in, the, in a tent in their backyard, and the man repeatedly raped her. At 14, she had his child. At 18, she had another child. And I read about that and said to myself, Pastor, how can such evil exist? I read another story of a mother who stabbed her two toddler daughters with a knife until they bled to death. And it's beyond our ability to comprehend. And we ask ourselves, where does such evil come from? And then even on a lesser scale, we sometimes encounter self-destructive behavior that doesn't make sense. Like, like, like a hard drug addiction or alcohol addiction, which seems to bring tragedy or crisis on a daily basis. And we're like, why? Teenage anger or hatred or rebellion that goes beyond the ordinary desire for freedom or independence. And they act out in a way that's almost evil. A person at work who seems constantly angry and divisive and condescending and and just flat hateful. And we see them and we say, what makes them be like that? It's like an evil that doesn't make sense. We're at a loss to explain it. You know why? Because our culture doesn't understand something that many other cultures of the world did and do. And it's this. There are evil demons that can enter a person... And become a controlling force in their life. We can't see them. 
They're in spirit form, but they are serving Satan and, and his evil work in the world today. And you might not see them speaking through an individual towards the preacher that is preaching in the middle of a service, but Satan is just as active today as he was in Mark chapter 1, just in a different way. The demons are unseen. Somebody said they're diabolically intelligent. They're able to subtly insinuate themselves inside a person and start to control them. Over time, they they cause this person to internally disintegrate while outwardly they wreak havoc against anyone who comes in their path. I'm here to tell you the devil and his demons are 100% real. But there is good news, and that's Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. We see that in Mark 1. To release those held captive by him. To fill them instead with peace and holiness. Christ came to to free someone from Satan's control. To to connect them to God. To give them joy and strength. And Mark 1 shows us the first time Jesus used his power to do that. He has absolute authority over demons. Even the ones that roam our world today. He speaks and the demons have to leave. There is no drawn out ritual here. That he used to cast the demon out. No mumbo jumbo. No incense. No props. No lengthy prayer. No poking somebody in the forehead and they fall down. No prolonged struggle. He simply makes the decision that the demon will no longer have control. And the matter is settled. He just gives the order. Come out of him. And the demon obeys. It's important to understand. That Mark was not trying to teach the people in Capernaum. Nor is he trying to teach us today a theological lesson on demons. We learn their reality in this text. But he's trying to teach his readers then and today a lesson about God. Specifically a lesson about God's authority. Mark was teaching his original readers that Jesus was God and that he carried the same amount of divine authority as God. And the same message we're to glean from this text tonight is simply that. That Mark is teaching us through this passage that our God does have all authority. That our God is the supreme authority. That nothing or nobody, including the devil himself and all his demons, as powerful as they are, has no power over our eternal, omnipotent, holy, righteous God. And that's good news for you. And that's good news for me. The people who saw this take place in Mark chapter 1, who witnessed the divine authority of Christ in both his speaking and in his ability to boss around demons, they had some amazement with a bit of fear mixed in. They weren't sure what to do with this level of authority. And as we grapple, I think, with the implications of this for us, I think we're faced with the same decision. Are we prepared for this kind of authority in our lives? Better yet, are we really submitted to this kind of authority in our lives? I'm not asking if you're willing to acknowledge God's authority in your life. Please listen. Because I just got overwhelming amens. When I said that he has all authority over demons. I think this church believes that. 
I'm asking, not have you acknowledged God's authority. I'm asking, do you submit to God's authority? When your spouse is not holding up to their end of the deal, when they've deceived you, disappointed you, devalued you, and hey, just oppress you, and you're left to decide, how am I going to respond to this? Question, is God's word your final authority? Oh, I believe you believe God has power and all authority in this world. But does he have it in your life? When your marriage is stressed? If you're a wife who is frustrated by her husband, who is either neglectful, lazy, unspiritual, dishonest, or any number of things... I wonder what the authority of the Word of God says for you, ma'am. Well, I'll teach you 1 Peter chapter 3 on the authority of the Word of God. This isn't my word. This is the authority of the Word of God. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not in word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning... Let it not be that outward adorning of, of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. And that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of, of God, of great price. What am I to do when I'm married to a husband that doesn't cooperate? Doesn't share my love for Jesus? Doesn't pursue me? Is irritable? Is short-tempered? Is angry? Is neglectful, doesn't lead our family, spends our money impulsively. What do I do with that? Well, if you can't get through to him by talking with him respectfully, then you win him by your chaste conversation. What does that mean? He elaborates on chaste conversation in the next verse. You don't have to make yourself more pretty. You don't have to make yourself more desirable to him. You need to give all your attention to the inner man of the heart and walk with God and let God take your spirit not and pull it away from what your flesh would want and that's to nag and to belittle and to disrespect and to shame. And by giving attention to the inner man of the heart, ma'am, you are letting God work within you a meek and quiet spirit. And through that spirit and through that chaste conversation, the Holy Spirit has a way of getting in and melting the hard, cold heart of your husband. A lot more than your nagging could do. Or manipulating could do. Are you submitted to that? Are you, that's not my plan. I'm asking you, ladies, are you, are you submitted in your marriage to that response? That's God's authority. If you're a husband and it's your wife that is disappointing you and frustrating you and burdening you, what does the Bible say to you? Well, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, the authority of the Word of God says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. As under the weaker vessel as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I wish I had time to just break down that verse entirely. It's powerful for the men in this place. 
But here's what, what God says. Here's what you're to do. You're to dwell with them according to knowledge. What does that mean? They don't tick like you tick. How you feel loved is probably not how they feel loved. And so you need to spend time with them and study them and invest in them and talk to them and listen to them and ask them questions. And you have to be able to see life through their perspective. You can't love them like you want to be loved. You can't talk to them like you want to be talked to. You have to know what makes them tick. You have to know what makes them feel valued. And then guess what? You got to do it. Sometimes the wife, she, she feels loved whenever you spend quality time with her. That's not how you might feel loved. That's how she feels loved. So guess what you need to do? Dwell with her according to knowledge. On the authority of God's word, spend quality time with her. Some women feel loved by just the fact that you're making good decisions, men. They don't need a card in the mail. They don't need a flirtatious text. They, they, they don't need chocolates. They don't need roses. They don't need quality time. You know what they need? Spend your money wisely. Amen. Have devotions and prayer time with your kids. Quit making her discipline all the time. Come to church without her begging you to do so. Give up your unholy habits. That's how she feels loved. When you come home, just don't act like a jerk. That'll help. Hey, I'm preaching tonight. It's okay. I'm just trying to say, we'll say God is the authority. But is he the authority in your marriage? It's one thing to acknowledge it. It's another thing to submit to it. Are you with me? How about when you're deciding which movie you're going to watch? What TV show you're going to watch. By the way, I don't need to tell you specifically what you need to watch and not. God and God's word and the principles outline it for us. And you have individual soul liberty and the Holy Spirit can lead you and guide you and direct you. And he will. Who are you going to hang out with and what are you going to do for fun on the weekend? Who are you going to do it with? Question, does God's authority and God's opinion really matter to you in those decisions? Do they Really? What does he say about those kind of decisions that, that in our mind can be gray at times? He says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you watch, you listen, you wear, you go, who you go with, do all to the what? Glory of God. The authority of the word of God says that the number one filter through which you should make decisions on, on entertainment, decisions on recreation, descending on, on spending, whatever the case might be, you should ask yourself, does this help me to glorify God? What does that mean? Magnify God. Make much of God. Here's another principle from the word of God. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does what I'm doing, does what I'm listening to, does what I'm watching, is where I'm going, is who I'm going with, is that me being able to show a dark world the praises of him who has saved my soul? Am I able to be light when I do this? And I'm able to be light when I drink this? And I'm able to be light when I participate in this? Proverbs 13, 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Who are you hanging out with? We, we always put this companion-type preaching on teenagers. But I see adults that have friends that aren't good for them. We never outgrow the potential of, 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 of 
allowing our companions to destroy our good manners, according to the Apostle Paul. Hey, this is God's opinion on the matters of of what you put into your heart through your ears and your eyes and even the things that you do for fun, recreation, who you do it with. I want to know, are you submitted to God's authority in these matters of your life or are they a separate compartment? You're you're submitted to God's authority in these matters, but what's on your TV, that's not not God's department. What your kids get to watch on their iPad, that's not God's department. Where we go on the weekend, that's not God's department. What we put into our bodies, that's not God's department. Well, I I would beg to differ. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Are you submitted to your maker? When there's a sticky situation at work and you have to decide between an impulsive reaction and a reaction of integrity and patience, does God's authority dictate your response? Whenever you have an opportunity for a job change or career advancement, are you some more submitted to the God of materialism and the God of greed and the God of gain and the God of success? Are Are you submitted to the God of this book and what he has to say about the matter? But seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's the authority. And his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Whose authority are you submitted to? I think sometimes our authority is economics. Ask Elimelech, Ruth chapter 1, how that went for him. He went to Moab based on economics alone. And it destroyed his family. Economics has to play into your decisions or you're foolish. But it cannot be the discerner. It cannot be the decider. It cannot be the authority. God is authority. Seek first the kingdom of God. And he'll provide the economics. He'll provide the food, the drink, and the clothing. By the way, that is God's definition of economics. The basic necessities of life. Not the second and third car. And the boat. And the fourth gun. You hear me? It's food clothing, and drink. Matthew chapter 6. That's God's economics. Doesn't mean he's against those other things. But this verse, you can't claim richness. You can't claim wealth. You claim need. When you've been offended, you've been hurt by somebody at home, at work, at church, on social media, who do you take your cues from for how to react to that offense? Do you take your cues from your flesh, which tells you to get even, to retaliate, to hold a grudge, to give them the cold shoulder and make them sorry they did that to you? Or do you submit and live according to God's authority when it comes to dealing with an offense? And what is his authority? Proverbs 19.11 teaches us that if we can let it go, we should. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. It's his glory to pass over a transgression. Thankfully, Jesus understood in our humanity we can't always let it go. That should be the first try, though. Sometimes we can't, so he gave us Matthew 18. And I will tell you, on public record, as a church leader, and just as a Christian in general, when I, I have not lived out this verse all the time. And every time I failed to live out this verse, exactly as it says, I regretted it. It's come back to bite me. But this is the authority. I have not submitted to this authority every time. And I've regretted it. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold. Oh, that's not the right verse. That's too bad. Go to Matthew chapter 18. 
Come on, let me hear your pages turn. Convince me you're not asleep, please. It's 15. It's, it's Matthew 18, verse 15. I put 25. That's too bad. I, I, want, I know you know it, but I want you to see the authority of God in this. Moreover, verse 15, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and what? Him alone. And it tells you what to do if that doesn't work, but that usually works. If we just skip that step. I've skipped that step. I've went around the person. I went behind the person. Hey, I went over the person. I just not went to the person. That's God's authority. It's God's authority. Go back to Mark chapter 1 and we'll look how the text ends. It's interesting that Mark points out how they responded and then it just drops off. Look at verse 27. They're all amazed so much that they question among themselves saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For if authority commandeth even the unclean spirits and they do obey him. And immediately, uh, apparently they went and talked about it. His fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Now look up here and I'll be done. You would think that once these people in the synagogue saw both the authority of Jesus preaching and the authority of Jesus over that demon, <clears throat> that the text would end with them falling prostrate to the ground in submission to God's authority, forsaking Judaism and believing you are God. And we humbly submit to your authority in our life. Kind of like Peter did in Luke chapter 5 when God said, Peter, go out into the deep. And, and throw out your nets. God, I've been out there all night long. I haven't caught anything. Do what I tell you to do. Nevertheless, Peter says, I'll do it. He went out there, dropped his nets, and what happened? It just went crazy fool, right? And what did Peter do? He fell down at the feet of Jesus. In submission to Jesus. Why? Because he acknowledged and was willing to submit to the authority of Jesus. But not this crowd. Jesus was famous to them, but they didn't follow him. Jesus impressed them so much so that they went and told everybody. It would have been on Facebook within seconds. Look what I saw today. But just because Jesus impressed them doesn't mean they're willing to surrender to him. And I think we can sometimes treat our God the same way. We acknowledge his divine authority in our lives. We just don't submit to it. We sing songs like the splendor of a king. Clothed in majesty. Let all the world proclaim. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice. You only tremble at the voice of someone who has authority. And we sing how great is our God. 
And it's a powerful moment when our church and corporate worship and our choir and corporate worship will lift their voice up and that whole song acknowledges the greatness and the power and the omnipotence and the authority of our God and often brings tears to our eyes and we raise our hands and we shout amen and we, it's amazing the response we get from a song like that. But then we go to work on Monday and we aren't submitted to the same authority we sing about. Our first and most fundamental Baptist distinctive is that our Bible is our sole authority. But when somebody makes us mad or disappoints us or offends us, do we really let the Bible dictate our response? It's not enough to acknowledge and even respect God's authority. We must be submitted to and living according to his divine authority. Because like the umpire told Babe Ruth that day at the plate, his opinion is the one that really matters. It's the authority of God. And Mark 1 is in the text, verse 21 through 28, to teach us that we should acknowledge God's authority over everything and everybody, but only acknowledge it to the point that it brings us to humble submission to it. In what area of your life are you not submitting to God's divine authority? That would be the area that you need to confess and make right with him.